that reading Noah. You might remember that we had that same reading a couple of weeks ago when we covered the first part of this section. I wanted to get all that in context because it all kind of fits together as we continue in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to talk tonight about God's eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus Christ. As we consider what we've studied already in the book of Ephesians, I want to do a very quick recap. We kind of got a lot of ground to cover tonight and in full transparency, this is probably going to take a little longer than my normal sermon, uh, so just kind of pretend I'm Danny tonight and we'll probably all be okay. Uh, but it, we do have some ground to cover tonight. We're going to pull the car over and park a couple of times because there's some really, really neat stuff in this passage. Um, I have benefited so greatly from the study of this book, and as Paul sort of winds up the second half or the, the end of the first half of the book of Ephesians, I've found truths about the gospel that have really affected me in, in ways that I've never really known before. And I hope that I can portray that to you tonight uh, and make you understand a little bit of what I think I've glimpsed from the scriptures here. So we've talked about how the book of Ephesians uh, is split into two parts. The first part is the theology, the concepts of Christianity, what God has done for us. And the second part is what is our resulting behavior? How do we live as Christians as a result of knowing what God has done for us. In part one, we talked about those blessings, and he lists a, a, a very short but very comprehensive list of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be holy and blameless, for us to be holy and blameless and to the praise of his glory. He talked about a prayer that, he, that they would know what God has done for them, the, their, the hope that they have, the value that they had to God, uh, the God's power that he directed to them, which was based in the resurrection and, and exaltation of Christ. We talked about how that God has raised us from spiritual death, from the course of this world. We're going to talk more about that tonight. And how we have spiritual life because of the riches of God's mercy and his grace and his love. And how we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've been made one in Christ. He talks about how we were separated, alienated, and strangers, and how that through Christ, he brought peace between the Jews and the Gentiles and between man and God, and that we are now citizens, we're now families and members of his household based on the foundations of Jesus and the apostles and prophets. Last week, we talked about the, the section that Noah just read is a parenthetical statement. In other words, he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 3 and with an idea, and then he breaks off from that. And verses 2 through 12 are basically a big parenthesis, and he talks about the fact that he didn't want them to be discouraged because he mentions his imprisonment. And so he talks about the reason for his imprisonment, his chains and his suffering, and he wanted them to not be discouraged. And he talks about the stewardship that he has uh, as a minister of the gospel. He talks about discerning the mystery, which is not a mystery at all. It's the revealing of information, how that was revealed to him by revelation. Jesus appeared to him personally and taught him the mystery and how that he's written it down, and you can read and perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ based on the words that he's written. And we talked about how that that mystery simply was the revealing of information, nothing uh, difficult to understand or complicated, but rather information that was previously unknown and has now been made known through the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. And that mystery was, of course, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of that same household, partakers in the promise that God made to Abraham. And so as we start part six tonight, God's eternal purpose 
what we see Paul doing here, he's made it very personal to the, the people at Ephesus at this point and to us as well, I suppose, in that he's talking on a very personal level, level of, I want you to understand, don't be discouraged because of my imprisonment. It's for your glory. It's for your salvation. But then what he's going to do in these next few verses is really take it to another level. And he's, the implications of what he talks about here are cosmic, not just personal, but on a very broad and cosmic scale. And it's a presentation of the gospel in a really broad way that's more than just about you and I personally, you and me personally. One of those is the right way to say that. I'm not sure which one right now. But it's more than just about me and more than just about you. So Paul talks about his gospel ministry here. In verse 7, and I want to back up to verse 6 because it sets the context. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he says, Of this gospel, the gospel he just spoke of, I was made a minister. And so I want to just briefly mention that Paul, when he taught about the gospel, he taught the same gospel. And he talked about that in the book of Galatians. He said, if, a, an, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, that which we preach, let him be a curse. And, you know, a lot of times we go to, a feet, to a 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, because there's not a clearer definition of the gospel found in scriptures. He lays it out very clearly. And he says, I declare to you the gospel. Then he tells you what it is. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But he's talked about that all throughout the book of Ephesians already. If you back up to Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how in Christ you were once for often brought near by the blood of Christ. He says that he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, how that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. He's talking about the gospel there. And somebody might say, well, he's talking about his death and his burial. What about his resurrection? Well, chapter 1, he talks about this mighty work that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand. And how he, in chapter 2, he raises us, up, raises us up with him and sets us with him at his right hand. So he's talked about the death, burial, and resurrection. This is all the gospel. That's what this all is. It's just the gospel presented to us in a way that maybe we haven't really considered before. At least I haven't. Now, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So what is he talking about here? Well, we talked last time when he talked about being a steward his stewardship of grace, and how that it wasn't a burden that had been pushed upon him by God that he didn't want any part of. Paul willingly accepted that stewardship. And what he's saying here is, I don't really even deserve this ministry. This is a ministry of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. God has given me this gift. This ministry is a gift based on God's grace. He says, I'm the very least of the saints. And to me, this grace was given. Now, Paul is not showing false humility here. This is really the kind of person he was. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 12 through 15, he says, Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But then he has this crucial conjunction here, the word but. I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And if you want to do an interesting study sometimes, study the link between unbelief and disobedience, and you're going to find a very strong link there. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or as the King James says, 
of whom I am the chief, the chief of sinners. And Paul is not showing false modesty here. This is who he was before his conversion. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. But something changed. What changed in him? God's grace, the gift of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, his conversion. That's what changed. And he tells us how that happens. He says, it was given to me. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. There it is again, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. There's that crucial conjunction. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But what does he say? Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about. How was the grace of God working in Paul's life? What does that mean? He says, again, I was the least, I was unworthy, I was persecuted, but what happened? By the grace of God, I am what I am. What does he mean by that? Well, he says back over here in Ephesians 3, um, what does he say? He said, this grace was given to me by the working of his power. What does that mean? Is he talking about something miraculous there? Is he talking about his his experience on the Damascus Road, I submit to you tonight that he is not talking about anything miraculous. In fact, I think he is talking about something that you and I can have as well. Receiving God's grace by the working of his power. And he's talking about exactly what he talked about in the first chapter of Ephesians, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to what? The working of his great might. Now, Paul loves to use this phrase, according to. He, and we're going to come across it a lot tonight. And we're going to do a lot of backtracking tonight because Paul is building on everything he's already talked about. But understand, he said, this power was given to us who believe according to the work of his great might. What was the great working that he did? Well, he worked it in Christ when he raised him from the, de- from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That was the working of his power. It's almost exactly the same wording. The working of his great might, the working of his power. So that was how Paul obtained this ministry of grace. And that was what sustained him as he worked and labored in the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may proclaim, may present everyone mature in Christ. Listen to what he said. For this I toil, struggling, We might expect him to say, I toil and I struggle with all my might, but that's not what he says. He says, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How does this work? What is this doing? Is it that Paul toils and struggles, and when he just can't toil and struggle anymore and he falls down, Jesus looks down and zaps him and says, get up, Paul. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the knowledge of what God has done for him. The knowledge of the working of God's great might when he raised Christ from the dead. Because what happened when he raised Christ from the dead? He raised Paul up with him. And he seated Paul with him. That's the working of his great might. And that's how Paul was able to toil and to struggle. Not on his own power, but knowing what God had worked and accomplished in him. What an amazing message for you and I. When we find look for strength. When we look for encouragement. When we How do I go on? This is how. By God's grace, you and I have been exalted with Christ, and that should always be a motivating factor in our life. Now, Paul is going to continue on with this, talking about his ministry 
in the gospel, and he's going to talk about two specific missions that he has. And this isn't an inclusive list or an exhaustive list of all his missions, but this is driving towards a point. So here's what he says in verse number 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, number one, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So this was, is the first mission he already talks about. We know that Jesus, when he appeared to Paul, told him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, first mission, I'm going to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this word riches is another word that Paul likes to use, especially in the book of Ephesians. And we see it in the first chapter again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight. These words, riches, and he lavished uh, these riches upon us. It, what does that make us feel like? It, it's, there's an overabundance of these riches. And an interesting thing to note that you should study on your own that we don't have time for tonight, this phrase, in all wisdom and insight, at the end of that, think about the way that God gives us gifts. And he gives us exactly what we need. There's wisdom in what he does. Sometimes we give gifts to people, and they don't really need those gifts, but God gives us exactly what we need. He's wise and has insight into that. But this idea of riches, what do we think about? When somebody says, well, that guy's rich, how do you respond to that? Do you say, what do you mean he's rich? No, we know what he means. They mean he's got a lot of money. That's a rich guy. He's got a lot of money. In Western culture, that's what we think anyway. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have money? Is it like Scrooge McDuck and I just want to go swimming in the money bin because I got all this money and it's just for the sake of having money itself? No, of course not. What is the money to us? What does it mean that we're rich? It means that we have resources to fulfill our desires, right? If I have money, all this money, it's not that I'm just like, oh, I got all this money. No, I can take that money and I can buy stuff with it to try to fulfill my desires. And so what Paul is saying is these riches that are found in Christ, these are resources that should be fulfilling the desires we should be having, which is to serve God and to follow Christ and to be in his family. Those are the kind of desires we should have, and in those desires we can find the resources to fulfill them in Christ. That's what riches in Christ mean. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, "...whatever gain I had, I counted as loss." For the sake of Christ. He counted it as loss. Whatever I had before, before my conversion to Christianity, I counted all as loss. Everything is loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Whatever I had before, it pales in comparison to the riches that are found in Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. We've heard the phrase, one man's Trash is another man's treasure. In this case, Paul's treasure became his trash. The things that he once valued and held in such high esteem, now he says, it's all worthless to me now. It's just garbage. I have true riches in Jesus Christ. Unsearchable riches. Unknowable, unfathomable, never-ending. You know, Brother Jimmy Hayes was here Sunday and talked to us about this void that we all have within us naturally. As human beings, we have this void or this hole in us that we try to fill with stuff, whether that's stuff, money or 
possessions or relationships or sin. But I want to tell you right now, that void is a Jesus-shaped void. Only he's going to fit it and fill it. And the only way to do that is through the riches that are found in Jesus Christ. And they're unsearchable. You're never going to come to an end. You're always going to be satisfied. Nothing else in this world will satisfy. You know, I think about whenever we go out and eat Mexican food. We go to Joe Taco in Canyon or Jorge's. And, you know, you gorge yourself on chips and you, you get the tacos and everything that goes along with it. It's so good. And I know I'm going to be miserable before I even sit down. You know, and you get done, and you're like, oh, I'm never going to eat again. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so miserable. But guess what? The next day, I'm eating breakfast. Why? Because it doesn't continue to satisfy. In Jesus, there's satisfaction, and it's never-ending. It's unsearchable. It's unknowable. The second thing, second mission he talks about, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and number two, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery for ages in God who created all things? The plan of salvation. He said, I want to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. We know what the mystery is. The fact that Jew and Gentile come together into the household of God. That's what the mystery is. There's a plan associated with that. The plan of the gospel. The plan of salvation. And Paul said, I want to bring to light or reveal or expose or make known the plan of the mystery. And that was his second mission. In Ephesians chapter 1 again, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Listen to this. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And we're going to come back to this concept of the plan here in a minute. But just know and understand that Paul's mission, or one of his missions, was to not only preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, but also to bring to light this plan of the mystery, the gospel, God's eternal plan of salvation. So those are the two missions. Now, the, those two missions that he talks about are pointing towards a larger objective, and this is where we really want to kind of slow down a little bit tonight and think about what he's really saying here. The implications, I think, are very important for you and I to understand so he says in verse 10, so that, in other words, because of these two missions I've just discussed, that I needed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and reveal the gospel to the world, those were so that through the church, that's you and I, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that this could happen. What could happen? The manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold means many-colored it's almost like the word unsearchable. It's, it's, we can't really wrap our head around how wise God is. His wisdom is just something we can't really understand. It's manifold. So Paul wanted to make known, or this was God's will, that through the church, through us, God's manifold wisdom would be made known to these rulers and authorities. So let's talk for just a minute about these rulers and authorities. Who are they? Who's he talking about? Somebody might say, well, he's talking about, you know, presidents and kings and queens and emperors. And there's, there's cases in the New Testament where the, that's what he is referring to. Like in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, he talks about when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. He's definitely in that point talking about 
these rulers and authorities. But understand this, the context of Ephesians 3 indicates otherwise. These rulers and authorities are in the heavenly places. And we've talked about this phrase, heavenly places, from what everything that I've read, maybe a more accurate translation would just be the word heavenlies. It's really just one word, and we don't really have a a one-for-one translation for it. Heavenly places or the spiritual realm. He talks about in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. So he's talking about the spiritual realm here. What we would call maybe heaven, but more just the unseen world that we know is around us, but we can't see it. So let's fast forward to Ephesians chapter 6 and listen to what he talks about there. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's how he starts out. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not struggling, fighting against people. What are we fighting against? What are we struggling against? He says against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. This is the real struggle. This is the real fight. It's not about going before kings and queens and presidents and rulers. This is about something much bigger than that, much more cosmic These rulers and authorities, they're spiritual beings. Who are they? They're the fallen angels. What we might call demons, the devil, and those that rebelled with him. And I know we don't talk about this a lot uh, in the church. We don't talk a lot about demons and stuff because, you know, we understand that demon possession was a thing that happened in the New Testament time when miraculous gifts were there to take care of that. But, you know, they're real. They're as real as angels are. Now, the Scripture says the angels long to look into these things, the things of the gospel. But I think specifically here, obviously, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about those fallen angels, these created beings of God. And and make no mistake, they are created beings of God. You know, he talks about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus. For by him, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, Understand this. All things were created by God through Christ. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There are those words again. All things were created through him and for him. So what are the implications of this? Well, these rulers and authorities, let's not come to the conclusion that these are competitors with God. That They got a shot at the title. They may have rebelled against God, But they were created by God. They were created by him and they were created for him. In other words, to serve his purposes. So when we think about these demons or these rulers and authorities, let's understand that they were created by God. They're not competitors. They have no chance of competing with God. And so we start to understand this concept of what he's trying to get across, these rulers and authorities, and showing to them his wisdom. How does he do that? Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 again. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Remember the working of his great might that we've already talked about? 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. There it is. These rulers and authorities, they're in the heavenly places. Well, Jesus, when he rose from the dead and God exalted him to his right hand, where is that? It's in the heavenly places. It's in the spiritual realm too. But where in the heavenly places? Far above. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named. What does that tell us? It tells us that there's ranks. There's ranks in that spiritual realm, and it tells us that Jesus Christ is far above those rulers and authorities. And they don't have a hope of competing with him. God has showed his wisdom by sending his son to this world as a man, him dying on the cross, and then raising him up and exalting him far above all those rulers and authorities. And here's the kicker. Here's where it really comes home for you and I. He puts us there with him. Back in Ephesians 2, and I know this is kind of small, but please bear with me. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's who we were. You once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit is not working the son of disobedience. Look at what he says down here. You are by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But there's that crucial conjunction again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were following Satan, what happened? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly places. Where Jesus is far above these rulers and authorities, guess where we are? That's where we are too. And that's why he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to these rulers and authorities. You and I, having been raised with Christ, are a demonstration of God's wisdom and his power. And so if you'll follow me through this logic here, created man, Adam and Eve, falls to sin in the garden. Why? Because of the so-called wisdom of the devil. You can be like God's. Oh, we can't eat of that fruit. God says we'll die. You won't die. God knows when you eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. Why don't you be wise like me? Why don't you be wise and rebel against God like I did? He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. You can be wise. The Bible says when Eve saw the fruit, it was desired to make one wise. She thought she was being wise, but she wasn't. You won't die. But guess what happened? They died. That very day, they died spiritually. God's creation, because of sin, has become spiritually dead. Instead of following God, what happens now? We follow Satan. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the course of this world. So how does God display his wisdom? Well, first, he sends his son to become a man and allowed himself to be put to death to pay for the sins of the world. Then he was resurrected on the third day and exalted to the throne of God. Unimaginable glory and power. And then here's the final kicker. It was this very act of exaltation that allowed God's mercy and his justice both to be satisfied. God wanted to save us, but he had to punish sin. 
And there at the cross it happened. And when Jesus was resurrected and exalted, guess what God could then do? He could resurrect and exalt us. And he could take that people that was once dead, once his enemies, and he can now say, these people are no longer my enemies. They're now my family. Thereby demonstrating to these rulers and authorities, showing his manifold wisdom. You think it was wise to rebel. You think you were doing the wise thing. You were actually foolish. Here's wisdom. I take into people that used to be with you, that used to follow sin, that were my enemies, and I've made them my family. That's the wisdom of God. And it all serves his eternal purpose. The eternal purpose of God. Paul concludes this section, or begins his conclusion, by saying this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus. These missions are preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light the plan of a mystery hidden for ages in God, for the purpose of God showing through the church his manifold wisdom to these rulers and authorities. It was all according to the eternal purpose of God. What does that mean for you and I? Before God ever uttered the words, let there be light, this was his plan. Since the creation of the world, nothing has been a surprise to God. And proponents of premillennialism and other doctrines will try to tell you, well, the cross was a backup plan or the gospel was a backup plan. It was God taking advantage of a situation he didn't foresee. Oh, they, I sent my son to them and they killed him. I didn't see that coming. Is that how God reacted? No. This was according to God's eternal purpose before the world was even formed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Remember, our inheritance and the path to that through Jesus Christ was predetermined. He knew it was going to happen. And so let's consider this word purpose. Same Greek word here, according to the eternal purpose, according to the purpose. Same Greek word. The purpose of God, the eternal purpose. But notice what he says here. This purpose is informed by something. It's informed by God's will. According to the purpose of him who works all things, according, there's that word again, to what? The counsel of his will. Now, we understand what a will is. It's just what we want done, right? If I leave a last will and testament, when I die, this is what I want to happen. Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will, what you want to happen. So we understand that God has a will, and in that will, he takes counsel with himself. How does that work? I don't know that I have a full understanding of it, but here's how I've sort of reconciled it in my mind. We read in the scriptures, when God made the promise to Abraham, what did he do? He swore an oath. He said, Abraham, through you, all nations of earth shall be blessed. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he swore an oath. But who did he swear on? Well, the scripture says, because there's no one greater than God, he swore on himself. If we take an oath, what do we, you know, if humans take an oath, what do we do? Well, we swear we put our hand on the Bible or we swear by a higher authority. What he's saying here is there is no higher authority. And so God swore on himself. He's saying the same thing here. Who does God take counsel with? If I have a problem I can't figure out, I might go to a godly brother or sister and say, what do you think about this? 
Someone who's wise. But who is God going to take counsel with? Who is wiser than God? No one. And so he takes counsel with himself. And if, if it helps you to sort of think about this as a manifestation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's probably some truth in that. I don't know. But I do know this. There's no one wiser than God. And so he takes counsel with himself. And in that counsel, it informs his will. Next, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Now, this word purpose, translated here in the ESV, is actually a different Greek word than what we find over here in Ephesians 3. It it doesn't really mean purpose. In fact, this is a great example of why you should use multiple versions when you're studying because I think in this case, as much as I love the ESV, I think it got it wrong in this case. I think the New King James is actually a better translation where it says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So what does that mean, the good pleasure? Whatever pleases God. So we find that there's a counsel of his will and a good pleasure of his will. And what that means is God's will is informed by his own counsel and by what pleases him. In other words, whatever God only does what pleases him, if that makes sense to you. You know, there are things that I want to happen, that I will to happen, that just don't happen. And we all understand that. But the things that God wills are only the things that please him. His will is going to be done in heaven and earth, as Jesus said. So what is all this telling us? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, what does it say? Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So there's that again. The mystery of his will. He's making known to us his will. How? Well, according to his purpose. And that purpose was set forth as a plan. So God's will informs his purpose, and God's purpose informs his plan. And I hope that makes sense to you. And I got a pretty chart we're going to look at in a minute that hopefully will help. But notice this this eternal purpose was realized in Christ. And he phrases it this way here in Ephesians chapter 1. He set forth in Christ as a plan. So this plan, this purpose was realized in Christ. So here's how I view this progression. You have God's will. This is sort of the, the impetus of where all this starts. God's will, which is informed by his own counsel and his good pleasure. And that will informs his purpose. What is his purpose? Well, part of that was to make known to these spiritual beings who had rebelled against him his manifold wisdom, among other things. And so because he, God had this purpose, what did he have to do? He had to bring that about, and to do that, he made a plan. The plan of salvation, the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel. And in the gospel, that plan was realized or fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Do we understand the implications of this? What we're saying is that God is not making this up as he goes. Kind of a famous line from a movie. It's like, well, what are we going to do next? I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go. God's not doing that. He's not making this up as he goes. He has an eternal plan that's based on his will and purpose. None of this is a surprise to him. And so he foresaw everything, including the rebellion of angels and humankind. He knew it would happen because he he was going to give us free will, and he knew what we would do with that free will. He knew we'd mess it up. 
And so he foresaw everything. And we, as the church, are part of God's eternal purpose that cannot be stopped. Do we truly understand the implications of this? You know, the personal implications are my sins are forgiven. I have a relationship with God. And that in and of itself is so amazing, we can't even really truly comprehend that. But what he's telling the church at Ephesus here, and what he's telling us is it's so much more, it's about so much more than just you. It's more than these, these chains, this prison cell that I'm in, this little speck and moment in time. All this is so much more than that. It's more than just the congregation at Ephesus. It's more than just the congregation in Amarillo. It's more than just the congregations in the United States and even in the world. This is a cosmic, this, this is on a level of cosmic proportions. This is showing to these created beings that God made that rebelled against him, you are foolish. I'm going to show you what real wisdom is. It's so much more than our petty squabbles and our differences. It's so much more than trying to live our best life and, and get stuff in this world. And what can the church do for me? And how can I benefit worldly from being in the church? It's about serving God's eternal purpose. And so Paul was able to say, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. No wonder he could say that. We are part of something so great and magnificent and wonderful, and you and I need to have a boldness and a confidence about us. Trevor's been talking a lot about assurance in the book of 1 John. This is where it is, right here. This is where you find it. The Hebrew writer talks about it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. On a personal level, I can go to God in prayer. How can I do that confidently? How can I do that with boldly? Because I know what Christ has done for me. I know what he's, where I am. I know that I've been exalted with him. But brethren, you and I need to have a boldness and a confidence that goes beyond just our personal interaction with God and knowing that we are a part of something way bigger than ourselves. That void that Brother Jimmy talked about, it's all about being part of something bigger than ourselves is what it is. And this is it. Oh, and by the way, this only happens in Christ. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ. Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the beloved, over and over and over and over. Only place you're going to find it. And so no wonder Paul was able to say, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This prison cell is nothing. It means nothing in the grand scheme of things. I might as well not even be in prison. I might as well not even be suffering because your glory, your part in God's grand purpose and plan is so much more than that, it's not even worth mentioning. Don't lose heart. 
And this is what it's all about back in chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. For what reason? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It all goes back to glorifying God and our place in that as the church. Why would we be discouraged? Why would we lose hope? Think about what we're a part of. And it's so easy to get distracted by life. It's so easy to get distracted by all the things that are going on around us. Little squabbles we might have. Indifferences. This is what's really important. God's eternal purpose. Be a part of that. If you have not joined the family of God, bringing it back down to that personal level, there is no more important decision for you to make right now than to give your life to Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is there, ready to wash away your sins. If you confess Him before men, if you repent of your sins and be buried with Him in baptism, meeting His mercy and grace there in the waters of baptism where His blood is, and join God's family. Be part of that family and join this great eternal purpose that the church has, that God has, has had from before the world began. Make that decision today. If you need to do that, if you need the prayers of the church, come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.